Welcome back to Trad Men, everybody. Um, and happy Father's Day to all our fathers out there. Happy um, Father's Day. You happy guys Father's are. Day. Guys are out there keeping it real, taking care of your business, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's on Father's Day that we are blessed to have our guest and uh, a great episode that is really going to focus in on the topic of spiritual fatherhood, which I don't think gets enough press in the world today. Um, and we've got some great spiritual fathers out there uh, and who are uh, who are really holding it down for the Catholic faith. Before we begin, obviously, we want to say a quick prayer, and we thought today, uh, today would be a great opportunity to invoke the spiritual father of spiritual fathers, the, the, the foster father of our Lord, uh, Blessed St. Joseph. Uh, so please feel free to join along with us to invoke uh, his intercession, that we will have a, uh, a really edifying discussion, and uh, this one should be a lot of fun. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. To thee, O blessed Joseph, we have recourse in our tribulations, and while imploring the aid of thy most holy spouse, we confidently invoke thy patronage also. By that love which united thee to the Immaculate Virgin, Mother of God, and by the fatherly affection with which thou didst embrace the infant Jesus, we humbly beseech thee graciously to regard the inheritance which Jesus Christ purchased with his blood, and to help us in our necessities by thy powerful intercession. Protect, O most provident guardian of the holy family, the chosen children of Jesus Christ. Ward off from us, O most loving Father, all taint of error and corruption. Graciously assist us from heaven. O most powerful protector, in our struggle with the powers of darkness, and as thou didst once rescue the child Jesus from imminent peril to his life, so now defend the holy church of God from the snares of her enemies and from all adversity. Shield each one of us with thy unceasing patronage, that, imitating thy example and supported by thy aid, we may be enabled to live a good life, die a holy death, and secure everlasting happiness in heaven. Amen. In the yeah. name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. St. Joseph, pray, pray for, for us. us. Joining us Mark, today. Yeah. Wh what's up? I, I, just wanted, I just wanted to say something. What's up? We, we have a first today. What's our, our first, first returning guest? That's right. And many of you remember, if you go back and watch our episode, God Save Ukraine, Dr. Alex Bielikowski was our very first guest, and he has returned today to talk with us about um, a man who we have put uh, uh, our, our podcast under his patronage mm -hmm. um, because we were, we're very inspired by his story and his example of spiritual fatherhood. Dr. Alex Bielikowski joins us. He is a former U.S. Army Reserve officer who has published on such diverse topics as the final years of the U.S. Horse Cavalry in the 1920s and 30s, African Americans in World War II, and Dwight D. Eisenhower as the first commander of NATO. He spent more than a decade educating military officers at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He currently works and lives in Houston, Texas. Dr. Alex Bieliakowski, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Today, we wanted to talk about the servant of God, Father Emil Capon, who if there might be some of our listeners who have not heard of him yet, but there are many who have and find his story incredibly inspiring. And we wanted to, to jump into this because his, his canonization process is currently ongoing, correct? Dr. Right. Bielikowski? Right. It is. And where are we in that process so far? We're at the servant of God level, correct? Right. He's still at the servant of God level. Uh, I, I have been under the impression for a couple of years now, it was like any moment he's going to be at least a venerable, um, uh, 
you know, because those that those early stages, the servant of God and venerable, do not require any uh, miracles. Okay. Uh, merely a, a, a life that you can prove with, with fairly good certainty was lived a holy life. Uh, and so I'm I'm really kind of surprised actually he's not at least a venerable already. Uh, there have been three miracles ascribed to him that are all currently in the process of going through the verification process in the Vatican. Um, so uh, again, I'm, I'm really surprised he's not at least a venerable, if not a blessed already at this point. And uh, Pope John Paul II is the one who uh, made him servant of God, correct? Correct. Yes, it was yeah. John Paul II. It was, I think it was 1993. So it's been a while. It has been a while. And that's, again, why I'm a little surprised. I'm not sure. I mean, I know that under John Paul, John, one of John Paul's big things was that we needed examples of sanctity, that the, the average Catholic needed more examples of, of sanctity in their lives. And so he made it a big effort to uh, kind of really expedite the, the, the saint-making process. Um, there, there were some people who criticized that, uh, and I know that uh, Pope Benedict actually tried to, to kind of put the brakes on a bit. Uh, and so uh, since from Pope Benedict, I don't think Pope Francis has changed any of that. So they really kind of slowed down the process. But I, I think, honestly, had John, if John Paul had lived longer, uh, Father Kalpin would probably be at least uh, a blessed by now. So it is so, Father Father Kalpin. I've been mispronouncing his name. I, I've heard know, it both ways. I've heard it both as Capon and Kalpin. Yeah. So okay. I, 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 it's a Czech name. His parents were Czech immigrants, uh, but unfortunately, I'm I'm a Polak, not a Czech, <laughs> uh, and so uh, so I might well be pronouncing it badly. And I apologize if there are any uh, listeners uh, to your podcast who understand Czech and are saying. That is absolutely you. All of you guys are pronouncing it the wrong way. It's pronounced <laughs> this way. I apologize. I, you know, I, I did want to piggyback off something you said real quick. I was going to save it till later in the show, but it seems kind of uh, an appropriate time. You know, you, you mentioned um, how uh, St. Pope John Paul II wanted to, you know, give more examples of sanctity and give these examples to, to people in the world to emulate. Right. Uh, just a quick story, if you'll allow. I, I know we just had our, our sixth child back in September of 2021, uh, a little boy. And we were trying to decide between uh, his, you know, between these two name combinations, either going to be Gregory Leo or it was going to be um, Colby Capon. And we, we were really torn between the two and r right there, probably the last month we, we settled on Colby Capon. We had no idea, and I don't want to jump too far ahead because, you know, it wasn't until recently that they found his or were able to identify his remains. Right. So once they did that, they had a they had a massive Christian burial. And me and my wife were sitting on in the hospital that night that, that our son Colby was born. We were sitting in the hospital, and we happened to be flipping through the channels, hit EWTN. Or, yeah, EWTN. Yep. And – um we noticed there was the vigil burial of Father Emil Capon going on the same day that our son was born, and we had no idea. And we were like, "That's a sign." Like, like yeah, instantly we're like, we picked the right name. I'll tell you, you know, what, because you ask because God for a sign, He'll give you a sign. Because as Catholics, or at least as I've become Catholic, 
names mean something. And, you know, the children that we've had since we've become Catholic, we take a lot more seriousness in what they name. You know, it's not just cash or or or, you know, whatever. But anyway, I I just wanted to share that story because it was so it, it was it was awesome because we had no idea. Turn turn the channel on. And, and, there, and theirs is about the same day that uh, our son was born, September 28th. And like and like St. Maximilian Colby, Father uh, Capon is, th- we're not talking about uh, uh, an example of sanctity from the 11th century. Right. Mm-hmm. This is very, I guess we should start where, where we start all stories. Let's, let's start yeah. with who Father Emil Capon is. And let's start with, I guess, introduce us how, you know, Give us give us the background on Father Emil Capon and and sort of why 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 he's why we should know who he is. Right. So uh, Father Emil Joseph Capon is born in 1916. Uh, he is uh, he grows up in Kansas. His parents, as I mentioned, are Czech immigrants to Kansas. Uh, in fact, his his uh, hometown is Pilsen, Kansas, which you can't you know Pilsen can't pick a more uh, a more perfect name for a Czech town than Pilsen. Um, he grows up a fairly normal, uh, you know, uh, Catholic man, uh, Catholic young man of that era. Uh, he des- decides upon a, uh, a vocation relatively early. Uh, he goes to both uh, a minor and a major seminary. Uh, we don't, you don't see those as much anymore. Minor seminaries, uh, they're basically high schools. But the whole idea is that uh, a certain percentage of these young men will go on to a major seminary. So you're actually giving them extra preparation ahead of time. Okay. Uh, he goes to a minor and major seminary. Uh, he's uh, ordained a priest in 1940 at the age of 24. So relatively young. Uh, but again, because he'd been in a minor seminary, he had, for all practical purposes, been in seminary for eight years. So okay. depending on how you looked at it, that would, he'd actually done quite a bit of seminary time. Um, <clears throat> he, he starts out as just a, an ordinary parish priest. Um, World War II, however, breaks out, uh, you know, uh, for us, uh, it's already, uh, already started in Europe, but for us, it, it breaks out, uh, you know, a little bit about two years into his uh, priesthood. Uh, obviously as a Czech, as an, Im- uh, the son of immigrant Czech parents, uh, you know, the, the Czechoslovakia had been absorbed by the Nazis uh, in 1938 and 1939. So for, I'm sure for him and his family and his, his town uh, in, in Kansas, World War II was already going. So I'm sure mm-hmm. that once we were involved, his, uh, his interest in serving our country uh, during World War II, I, I, I'm pretty sure was pretty high because he saw his own uh, his parents' home country being, you know, destroyed by the Nazis pretty early on there. Uh, he first starts out as a um, auxiliary chaplain at an airfield that is not far from uh, where he grows up. Uh, it's Harrington Army Airfield in Harrington, Kansas. He's an auxiliary chaplain. And what that means is he's still a civilian. He is still not mm-hmm. a member of the Army He's just like an extra priest when they need extra uh, help with confessions or masses or, or other sacraments. Okay. Uh, he comes in and for about six months, he does that. Uh, I think he, I, I want to say it was a, around January, 1943, he starts uh, serving as an auxiliary chaplain. And then later on in that year, um, I, I think I, 
I can't remember exactly when, but later on in 1943, he officially becomes a chaplain in the United States Army. Uh, he gets sent to the uh, Army Chaplain School, which is at, at that time was at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. Uh, he graduates. Uh, he is a chaplain for a little while at Camp Wheeler, Georgia. Um, and very late in the war, in April 1945, so the war in Europe is basically over, um, he is sent to the China-Burma-India Theater. Uh, and he spends uh, a, about a year in the China Burma India Theater, um, which is you know I mean talk about the theater nobody cared about the the last theater for everything for supplies, for manpower, uh, for everything. He spends about a year there, uh, but the the CBI as it's called the China Burma India Theater CBI is also in some ways one of the most diverse theaters because it, of course it includes you know three major different cultures india uh china southeast asia is sort of in there it depends on which map you look at sometimes right. it's in a different theater um he he travels uh over two thousand miles within the theater mm. to perform his ministry um by jeep by airplane so forth and so on. Uh, so it's even though it's he doesn't see a lot of action in the sense of combat by that point in in that theater. Um, he's he's everywhere all the time. He's he's traveling all the time, uh, trying to get to uh, not just American units, uh, but to other Allied units who who need uh, the sacraments, uh, and likewise to the indigenous populations in India and in China. When he can, he says the mass. And again, that's that's one of the things about the mass. Uh, when when we had the the traditional mass, is it was universal, uh, and so you know he could go and say a mass to a Chinese congregation, and it wouldn't make any difference that he didn't know any Chinese. The mass was in Latin. They, these these you know uh, men and women in China or in India were used to hearing the mass in Latin. So. Right. The fact that this was a guy from America who spoke English didn't make any difference, you know. And so, and and while he's in this theater, uh, who? Okay, so uh, the, the I guess the principal antagonist in this theater would be J the Empire of Japan, right? Right. And uh, I can't think, and I know this this will shock a lot of people because this shocked me when I first heard this statistic. Um, if you if you think about somebody once asked me which army in world war ii killed the most civilians and i went germany easy japanese eh, eh. um the the japanese army under imperial japan was tantamount to a religious cult a religious death cult essentially yeah. oh they were brutal at that time yeah and so when you're traveling around this theater i mean you could get the sense that well it, that maybe that's not that dangerous because he's not in combat it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, you you did not want to get taken prisoner by the Japanese. I can tell no, you that no, right not now. Not at all. Was was there was that something that was a serious uh, possibility for Father Capon at this time, or is he pretty much is he far enough in the rear that that's not something no, that's from what I've read. He is more on the safe side, but anytime you're traveling by air in an mm. undeveloped theater, which is the CBI. Uh, if you have any problems with that aircraft, you're going down in the middle of nowhere. And right. 
the, the uh, odds of you making it out alive unless you can find friendly forces is pretty small. So uh, I would say that was where he encountered probably his, his greatest danger is when he was traveling by air in that theater. Because, again, it's an underdeveloped th uh, theater. And where would you land? Hmm. Um, you know, if you can survive the, the crash landing or the trying to land in an open field kind of thing, uh, you can't land in a rice paddy because your wheels will dig in right away and you'll nose up. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, that was probably his biggest danger is when he was traveling by air. And I'm not, you know, I'm not clear on how often those flights would have been on like a DC-7, uh, you know, bigger aircraft, a twin engine uh, cargo aircraft, or how often he might have been tra traveling in what amounts to a Piper Cub, you know, with uh, with just a pilot, him and, and maybe his, uh, his the chaplain's assistant, something mm. like that. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that China is China. No country suffers more uh, when it comes to civilian deaths uh, than than China. Uh, but their population is so large that as a percentage, it's smaller. So mm -hmm. people will often, you know, think about the Soviet Union or think about Poland or, or countries like that where the losses are horrible. But it's the percentage of society. This, the percentage, the society is, is a smaller society. So those percentages are much larger, but in raw numbers, yeah, China suffers absolutely horribly. Uh, if you want to, if you want to read a book that'll keep you up at night, uh, Irish Chang, a famous historian named Irish Chang wrote a book called the rape of Nanking. I've read it. Which discuss. Yeah. Uh, which discusses that, uh, the, the absolute savagery in the capture of the city of Nanking by the Japanese. And army. put it to you this way. The, the third Reich's ambassador to Japan happened to be in Nanking and it was too much for him. He wrote cables back talking about how horrified he was. So uh, if, if you've, if you've shocked the third Reich <laughs> with your brutality. Um, and he personally saved something like 5,000 people. Did he really? Yes. Wow. I didn't know that. Inside the embassy leg legation. He managed just to save something like 5,000 people. Interesting. Who, who saved him? Father, uh, no. Father Kupan no, or no, the, no. the third Reich? Or this the, is the Nazi ambassador the Nazi. to China. Wow. Okay. He may okay. not have even been the ambassador. He might have been, you know, they have like chargé d'affaires. Yeah, he was some that. kind of attaché. I know yeah. that. Okay. And uh, he managed to save something like 5,000 people, I think it was. Wow. I apologize. I don't remember his name. I've, re I've read about him. Yeah. He gets demoted, by the way. He's ordered back to Germany for what he did, gets demoted, and kind of does nothing for the rest of the war because he, you know, he speaks out against that in, in, uh, in 1937, I think it is. But anyway, rough topic. Uh, so, so well, uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going to ask you. Uh, I mean, uh, if you had a thought you wanted to finish there, go ahead. I, no, no, I'm good. No, I was just going to say. So, you know, we, we come to the end of World War II and all this, and Father Capon seems to be known for his heroics in the Korean War. But there was a period of time between World War II and the Korean War. Uh, what was Father Capon? doing between the 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 world war ii and the korean war was he still on active duty or did he return to civilian life or well he returned to civilian life in 1946 uh and uses the gi bill like a lot of uh american veterans do and he goes and gets a uh master's uh uh in education at catholic university of america interestingly enough <clears throat> and almost as soon as he graduates he goes right back in the army uh, as a chaplain. So he is a chaplain starting again in 1948. Uh, I don't know exactly how he managed to pull that off 
because that he would have needed the permission of his bishop. Uh, so I don't know what, what the situation was. I'm not 100% sure, but he was in, he was, like I say, does the masters on the GI Bill, uh, and then boom, goes right back in as a chaplain. Um, first stateside, uh, he's, he's at, uh, first he's a chaplain. Um, I, where did my notes? Uh, Fort Bliss. He's a what? chaplain at Fort Bliss in Texas here. Uh, and then in 1949, he goes to Japan as part of the occupation army. And he's a chaplain in the first cavalry division in Japan. You may have, you may have mentioned it and, and, and I just didn't uh, hear it, but what was his rank during this time in the military? He was a captain. He'd made captain before he left the army the first time he makes okay. captain. And I want to say 1946 before he leaves. Uh, the way it's done nowadays is that um, chaplains are generally first lieutenants right off the bat. They skip kind of skip second lieutenant to give them a little extra to, money. I was about to ask you that yeah, if, they, if, they, if chaplains skip the lower ranks or skip second lieutenant, go right to first lieutenant and, pretty much within a year they're a captain because okay. it's in, for, in their case, it's not about really rank. It's just about pay because these mm -hmm. guys are skilled. A good percentage of chaplains, regardless of their denomination, have a doctorate or pretty close to a doctorate. And so this is the army's way of doing that. It's just like in the medical corps, doctors and dentists and uh, people like that go in as a captain right away. They pretty much go okay. boom. They're a captain right off the bat. And then they make major pretty quickly after that. Um, uh, because again, it's, we're trying to compensate you for, uh, for the level of education you're bringing into the army right away. So father Capon is, is a, is a captain at the end of his first service and right away again, when he starts a second service. So when, when a chaplain is in the military and this may be a silly question, but, but I don't know it when, when a captain or a chaplain is, uh, in the military, do they have, um, any say if they're going to be a, a frontline chaplain or if they're going to be, you know, one that, that hangs back, I guess, at the bases or, or wherever, or is it just like most of the other people in the army, you go where they tell you to go? Uh, to a true degree, it's you go wherever you are told to go. But if you volunteer, uh, especially in something like that, it's just like, you know, doctors, lawyers, and chaplains are the three kind of specialist groups uh, within the, the armed forces where we're giving you your rank, not because we ever expect you to command anybody, but because of a specific set of skills and education that you bring to it. Uh, and so with those groups, uh, especially in an era where there's no draft, like today, it's very hard to recruit those groups. Mm. Uh, and so uh, how you treat them, you treat them with a little more kid gloves, you're not going to you're not going to tell them quite as much what to do in an era where there's a draft. Um, they will draft doctors and lawyers. They'll draft. They won't draft chaplains. Uh, even during world war II, they did not draft chaplains. Mm -hmm. However, they put out an appeal uh, to religious denominations in the United States uh, asking people to volunteer. Uh, and so if you had a chaplain like father Capon uh, who volunteered couple times uh and who wanted to be with troops they're not going to tell them no right. i mean if you want to be with the frontline troops they're going to take you uh same thing with a doctor or a lawyer a doctor or a lawyer who wants to be with a combat unit um 
they're not going to tell you no because uh, they, they need those guys. And that means you're motivated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're more likely to do a good job if you're a volunteer uh, than if you're voluntold, as we always used to say. in the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So in 1950, so, so, so he comes back from World War II um, and he more or less returns to civilian life, gets his education. In 1950, a crisis develops in East Asia. Tell us a little bit about, um, and, and you don't, have to give us the, uh, the 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 doctoral dissertation on the Korean War, but give us sort of a uh, for people like myself. I know there was a war in Korea. I have no idea what it was about because it was way before my time. So, sort of a bird's eye view of the crisis that develops uh, in the 1950s in the Far East. Right. So Korea had been an independent country uh, up until 1905. Uh, and it is absorbed by the Japanese first as just a puppet state. Uh, and then in 1910, they depose the monarchy uh, in Korea and they make it a full-fledged part of the Japanese empire. Uh, from 1910 to 1945, it is, like I say, it's 100% part of the Japanese empire. The Koreans are treated very badly. Um, nobody is quite as xenophobic as the Japanese. And again, going back to your reference earlier about, well, everyone thinks of the Nazis as being you know, the worst, like when it comes to racism. Oh, no, they've got nothing on the Japanese prior to World War II. Uh, the, the Japanese prior to World War II, if you're not Japanese, you're subhuman. Uh, and it doesn't matter how ethnically close you are. Uh, unlike the Nazis who, you know, if you're Danish or Norwegian or Nordic Swedish, or something like that. Yeah, you're, you're basically okay. There's no problem. There's, and there's, there's nothing like that for the Japanese. You're Japanese or you're not Japanese. It seems like such a different mindset from the Japanese that we know of today, at least from, yes. from my experience. Very different mindset. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Uh, I've met people who've traveled to Japan. And, well, the Japanese people are certainly polite, uh, mm-hmm. and, and they're not going to, like, you know, call you names to your face or anything nowadays or anything like that. There's still very much an attitude that Japan is for the Japanese. Uh, Hmm. Japan has one of the worst population replacement rates in the world. Uh, I I think the last that you, so you need 2.11 children per women just to maintain your population base. Okay. That's the statistical uh, number. It's 2.11. Uh, the Japanese, the last time I remember reading this were like 1.19. So it was one of the worst replacement rates in the Western world, in the Western being modern, uh, industrialized, whatever term, post-industrial, uh, world. Um, and the Japanese, you know, other countries who've had those issues, uh, have, you know, tried immigration they've tried all kinds of other things the japanese are basically just building robots i mean i I know it seems like a joke and a stereotype but that i mean the japanese solution to this problem is we're just going to build lots of robots and they'll take care of all the elderly people that are going to be in our society and eventually it'll it'll balance itself out interesting i always yeah i always viewed them uh uh, well i mean i still view them in a good light but i i didn't realize they still carried over some of those same mindsets. I, I know that, that there are still, there are restaurants to this day in Japan that are Japanese only. So if you're a tourist, you can't really? eat those restaurants. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I should have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. Keep, yeah. Keep your mouth shut. Co-host. <laughs> 
so, no, so the, again, yeah, it, it's it's not what it was. I mean, they're not right, they're yeah. not being mean to people or anything like that. But they're they're very much there's still an element to which they're a closed society. You know, but they imperial, are yeah they they are very polite people in my experience. Yes. So you know, so yes. imperial very imperial nice. imperial Japan collapses, and Korea is sort of in a chaos state for a while. Who's right, going so to be in charge? Right. So what happens is we had asked the Soviet Union uh, to help us in Asia. Because the Soviet Great Union idea. was Great yeah, idea. the Soviet Union was neutral, already. <laughs> neutral against the Japanese uh, for almost the entire war, and uh, at uh, one of the late war conferences, and I apologize, I'm blanking right now. That's Malta. One of, uh, it's either Potsdam or Malta. I want to say it's Malta. Yeah, probably Malta. Malta. Yeah. Yeah, I, I or yeah. Anyway, it's one of the late. It's the, one of the early, like early 1945 uh, kind of uh, conferences. And we we remember we have not exploded the atomic bomb yet. So okay. everyone needs to keep in mind. And this is one of the things about dealing with history. So we know now that we're going to have the atomic bomb. So we look back at this decision to beg the Russians to help us by attacking Japan as what kind of a boneheaded move was that but when this decision is being made in i think it was january 1945 we don't have an atomic bomb it's not mm -hmm. ready and for all we know it might take two three four if it works at all ready. yeah if it works at all if exactly. we don't get beat to it yeah yeah exactly so again at the time roosevelt makes a very rational decision we cannot defeat the Japanese on land all by ourselves. Because yeah. remember, two-thirds of the Japanese army never leave China throughout all of World War II. Right. And this is another thing where, you know, we, we won the war in the Pacific. Okay, yeah, we did. But if it wasn't for the Chinese holding down two-thirds of the Japanese army, boy, all those islands would have been a heck of a lot harder to capture. Indeed. They were already and tough enough as it is. Exactly. As it was. Exactly. So China, who kind of uh, China doesn't get much credit for World War II. It's like, oh, they didn't really do much. The Americans did most of the fighting in the Pacific. No, no. The, the Chinese do the majority of the fighting and the dying in the Pacific, Asia Pacific area. Um, and again, they hold down two thirds of the Japanese army. Uh, we fight only one third of the Japanese army and the Japanese Navy. And that's it. Um, and the Japanese army is way bigger than the Japanese Navy. So it's a much more formidable foe. So uh, the fear is it's January, 1945. And what are we going to do? I mean, we, we, we know Germany's on its last legs. How are we going to defeat the Japanese? Yeah, I know, I know as I'm Roosevelt, I know there's going to be this bomb thing, but who knows when the heck that's going to be ready. Okay. And so we asked the Russians, will you help us? in exchange for more Lend-Lease stuff. Basically, we're going to give them more stuff. And we go ahead and uh, we get them to agree that three months, 90 days, after the Germans are done, <clears throat> they will start a war against the Japanese. And so, uh, you know, May in May, the, Jap the Germans formally surrender. So June, July, August, boom. The, the uh, uh, attack against uh, the Japanese by the Soviet Union begins. Now, what comes out of this is that they destroy that two-thirds of the Japanese army 
pretty handily. Um, now, what that means is they're also going to have to mop up in Korea. But we're not thrilled about them having all of Korea. So we agree that the, their, the 38th parallel runs almost to the middle uh, of the Korean peninsula. So we say to them, you guys just come to the down to the 38th parallel. We'll land and go up to the 38th parallel. And that will be the dividing line for this, this country, this Korea. Okay. Well, like with East and West Germany, the whole idea is in time, in a couple years, we'll have elections. We'll reunite the country. Everything will go back to normal. Well, you know how that story ends with East and West Germany. Uh, it ends, well, it's still going on in yeah. Korea. Sure. Um, the, the North is turned over to hardcore communists who happen to be Koreans, who were uh, contemporaries and, and colleagues of Mao Zedong. Uh, so they take over the North and in the South, we've got to figure out, well, what the heck do we do with this place? Um, we managed to find, there was almost no Korean expat community in the United States in 1945. I mean, that, that, that didn't exist. We managed to find a Korean in the United <laughs> States. He is a, he has a PhD. He's a PhD, uh, and an erstwhile uh, kind of vagabond professor and a guy who had been spending, he'd spent the last 20 to 30 years in the United States going to school, teaching, and just basically rallying for uh, Korean independence. And this is a guy named Singman Ri. And so we, we grabbed Singman Ri because pretty much he's the only Korean we have. Uh, and, and he's prominent in the rather tiny Korean American community. And we say, hey, would you like to be president of Korea? And we ship him back to Korea and we form this thing that eventually becomes the Republic of Korea. Interesting. And so uh, enter into this, um, uh, the world's greatest humanitarian, Kim Il-sung, who, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, who starts a war uh, to reunify the peninsula. Right, right. We... And to, yes. Yeah, to sort of, I, I, and I don't, I, we're obviously not doing a whole thing on the Korean War, but right. I, I do want to sort of give a bird's eye view that this this is what forms the crisis that calls him, Father Kapon back into action. Right, right. Less... So North Korea invades South Korea. Singman Rhee, our South Korean guy, was such a loose cannon uh, that we basically underfunded his army because we were afraid if we gave him too much of an army, he would invade North Korea. And in fact, when word hits the United States that a war is broken out in Korea, Harry Truman is back in independence. He's not in Washington at the time. He's in independence, visiting his family. Uh, and uh, when he, you know, his aide pulls him aside and says there's a war broke out in Korea, he immediately said, who invaded who? Because that was his initial thought is, oh, God, Syngman Rhee has gone and invaded North Korea. That's just what I need. Uh, but no, it's the communist North that invades the South. Um, and they chew through uh, the South Koreans pretty quickly. And, and that's partly our fault because we did not equip them to be a modern army. We basically shut, set them up to be basically a, a glorified police force. Let's put gotcha. it that way. They have an army on paper, but they don't have any heavy weaponry. They don't have any tanks. They have very few aircraft. It's basically a force just designed to keep order in the South. 
So in our in our attempt to avoid another war in East Asia, we in fact precipitate a war in Asia. A, a war in Asia. Yeah. <laughs> it seems well, like history's on repeat sometimes. Yeah, yeah. foreign yeah. policy it's uh it's it's hard. <laughs> and um, so what happens then is uh, the United States starts rushing troops that are part of the occupation force in Japan into Korea to bolster the South Korean armed forces. And the 1st Cavalry Division is one of those units that gets sent over. So Father Kapan uh, gets over relatively quick in the Korean War. So he's already on deployment when the Korean War breaks mm-hmm. out. Is what right. He's already in Japan. He had gone over in Japan in late, I want to say December 1949. Wow, okay. I was going to say, because from, from what I understand, from, at least from the timeline, when he left the U.S., uh, when he entered the Army again and went uh, – with the occupation of Japan, he never returned to U.S. soil again, did he? No, he never did. Yeah, that was he never did. He said he went. He visited Pilsen again to say goodbye to his parents before de- deploying to Japan in late '49, and that's it. He never he never goes home. He wow. never goes home. Wow. And so, so he arrives. So he arrives in the peninsula, and right. what's his what is his experience of the Korean conflict? So he is a chaplain in the Eighth Cavalry Regiment. Um, now, by, by this point, these cavalry units are cavalry in name only. Uh, there, there's, there's no horses involved. Uh, the 1st Cavalry Division, both in World War II and in Korea, fight as infantry. Uh, and they will likewise fight as infantry in uh, the Vietnam War. In the 1970s, they'll be converted to an armored division. So if any of your listeners serve with the 1st Cav and are going, hey, we were in infantry. Yeah, I know. Since 1973, 74, it's been an armored division. They're tankers. Uh, okay. but, but prior to that, from 1942 or 43, when they dehorsed all the way until the early 70s, for about 30 years, they're an infantry division. So they keep all the cavalry names, but they're, they're infantry units. They're, there's nothing kind of exotic or odd other than the names and the kind of cool lineage. Uh, he's with the 8th Cavalry Regiment. He's a regimental chaplain. Uh, and he is wherever he needs to be. Uh, Father Capon was known uh, very well by his troops as being a guy who was everywhere uh, doing everything. Uh, he was, he really was one of those old style priests who uh, he had no, he had no fear. Uh, and I don't want to say that lightly, like, like he was cocky or something. He had no fear because he had, you know, complete faith. He had complete faith that God was going to do with him as he wished. Uh, and the three of us all know a priest who is exactly like that, who we, mm-hmm. we won't mention because we don't want to embarrass him. Uh, but, uh, but you know, uh, that it, when you're around a guy like that, and, and the three of us have been, um, it's just – You can sense it. You can feel it. I mean, yeah, it, I've, I've, I've mentioned on this show before the priest you're talking about, I, I truly believe I'm, I'm living around a living saint today yes. you know every time I, I interact with him but uh going back to father capon yeah i mean when you read about his his heroics and what he was doing there in the korean war in particular like you said his he was known by his men uh by his men for his bravery you know uh for his willingness to help wherever he needed but he was taking care of both the physical and the spiritual needs of the people Right. in the army in war zones during battle uh, you know he was helping the wounded he was bringing food and medicines to who 
you know, wherever it needed to be. But he was also hearing confessions. He was also performing mass. And Mark put a picture of him up earlier performing mass on the hood of his Jeep in a war zone. And that's one of my favorite pictures of Father Capon because you can see the love and care that in, in the midst of a very dangerous situation, he was still there given the spiritual nourishment to the men that were fighting in, you know, in this war. Right. And he was decorated for valor before his, you know, ultimate actions uh, earlier in the campaign. Uh, he finds out that a, uh, a wounded soldier had been left behind when one of, one of the eighth cavalry's uh, troops had pulled back. Uh, and he and his uh, chaplain's assistant, uh, find out there's no litter bearers to run out to get this guy. So he and his chaplain's assistant run out there and uh, on a battlefield and bring this guy back. And he receives wow. the Bronze Star for Valor, uh, which actually to me was kind of a, a, a rather puny award for what he did. But mm -hmm. he, he goes ahead and does this. And that's his actual first award for Valor is early on in the campaign. How many awards for Valor did he get minus the Medal of Honor that he was he he's given well he's given uh, a bronze star with a, a valor device bronze star okay for those who don't understand a bronze star is this weird medal and if i was secretary of defense i'd fix this but it's a medal that can be awarded for either valor or service but it has to be in a combat zone in either case uh and unfortunately it's very confusing for people who don't know what they see bronze star oh you're a hero well no i knew dozens of guys hundreds of guys who had bronze stars who nobody had ever shot at they were just in a combat zone and had done a good job and you could get a bronze star but he had a bronze star with a v device which means he wanted for valor wow. uh, he did something valorious uh, he'd also received the legion of merit uh, the legion of merit is a service award it's not really specifically a valor award but the way it was awarded in his case it was really more for valor um, again, it's one of these weird things where you could get it with a V device. It wasn't awarded in his case with a V device, but it should have been. He really should have had two decorations for valor prior to the Medal of Honor. But it's just a weird way the Army does stuff. And, and in, you know, his. Uh, I was just going to say his. I know later he was awarded by actually President Barack Obama the Medal of Honor um, that his nephew received, I believe, around. Right. 2013 i think it's sometime around. yeah so something like that and i'm probably jumping a little ahead here but i think it's such a, an incredible story that when he won his heroics for winning the medal of honor he basically uh, uh this gentleman named sergeant miller was wounded he he apparently runs up knocks the the north korean soldier away from uh killing sergeant miller and you know rescues sergeant miller i believe even helps him on right. the march to the pow camp and the amazing thing is because of his his heroics sergeant miller was there in 2013 and you can see this on video when president obama was awarding uh the medal of honor sergeant miller was alive and you could see him and all the men that knew him I mean, you could just tell the love that those men had for Father Capon. That's, right. a, real, so, that's so a real priest right there. Yeah, so ultimately what happens is um, Father Capon is uh, – the, the, 
American and Korean forces are forced down into a pocket around the city of Pusan. Uh, and then there's a breakout, and then we start going back up north. And Father Capon's unit winds up getting, uh, they're, they're going to be overrun. Because there's this back and forth between uh, we gain and then they gain. The Korean War is very much, for the first year or so, is a up the peninsula, down the peninsula, up the peninsula, down the peninsula. The very of definition of a pirate victory. Yeah, exactly. One. Of a what? Um, a pirate victory is a victory where you you win the war, but at what cost? It's like exactly <laughs> you yeah. you 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 won, but you're the only guy left standing, and everybody's dead. Right. <laughs> it's like a victory, but you know. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. Exactly. And and and, so and and I'm guessing that uh, after 60 years of occupation by the Imperial Japanese, these North Koreans had learned a few things about how to treat prisoners. My guess. Yes. Is. Yes. And so what happened is. Uh, uh, Father Capon's unit is going to be overrun. They're evacuating and they're going to leave behind some wounded guys. They don't have the transport and so forth to take with these wounded guys. And they're just going to abandon them. And uh, Father Capon refuses. He says he's going to stay back with the, the medics and doctors uh, to care for the wounded. And that's the example that Jason was talking about where he mm. saves this guy. That's during the, during the process of being, uh, becoming a prisoner of war that he saves that man's life, that Sergeant wow. Miller. And um, so he's, he voluntarily allows himself to become a prisoner of war. And he, yeah, I was going to say he could have left, right? Yeah. Have, I mean. Yeah. And there would have been no, no recrimination whatsoever. Uh, he was un, unwounded himself at that point. So there was no need for him to stay, stay back. He could have easily evacuated with the, the other people who were healthy or at least well enough to, to travel. Uh, but he decided to stay back. Talk uh, about fatherhood, you know. Yeah. We're talking, you know, for a Father's Day episode, we're talking about fatherhood. I mean, <laughs> yes. if only we all could follow that that Indeed. example. Indeed. Right. And so this is the point at which the Chinese had actually entered the Korean War, and that's why uh, we are being thrown back so rapidly. This is November of 1950, uh, and China has now entered the Korean War, which is going to change the whole nature of the war at this point. Uh, and so Father Capon is captured, um, and over the next, uh, about three months, three to three to four months, he is, uh, he is again, everywhere doing everything for everyone. He is giving away his food. Uh, he is making sure that men, uh, who need help can get help. He is actually rallying the men because there was an awful lot of these men uh, who were not really, not really anxious to put up much of a fight. Let's put it that way against the Koreans. Once they were prisoners, I mean, they were just going to, you know, knuckle down and, and not say anything, not do anything, not help each other. And it's father Capon who goes in and kind of rallies these guys. And by his example, he starts doing so much that he basically embarrasses these guys into helping other people. Um, and, and he does so without regard to religious faith. Uh, there, uh, I've seen a documentary on Father Capon's life, and one of the people who is, gives the strongest testimony for Father Capon that ultimately helps lead to his uh, Medal of Honor is actually Jewish and, and, and talks in glowing terms about Father Capon and, and how great a man he was. So this is not a man who in any way is discriminating Based on Un going around unconditional okay, love, yeah. Do you have a Do you have a C on your uh, dog tag? Well, then I'll help you. 
No, uh, that's not how this guy is. He, he you're, if you're an American, he's going to help you. Uh, and and given the you know the 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 life he had led up to that point, in a certain sense, we shouldn't be that surprised at all. That's exactly the man he had been his whole life up to that point. Um, yeah, because if you if you if you spend your life cultivating that holiness and cultivating that life of virtue, I mean, if if you don't if you don't put in the time of if you don't make it a lifelong journey to cultivate that life of grace, that life of virtue. This idea that you're just going to step up and be the saint the world needs when it comes time—it doesn't work that way. It, it's a lifelong process, and so yeah, the, the, you can look at Father Capon's life as a as a as a training for this for this experience, this POW experience. And so when you're when you're in that position, it's almost like God's put you there and said, "Okay, it's time." It's just like the Show worn up. out, worn out example that everybody uses about weightlifting and running and stuff like that. You're not just going to wake up tomorrow and run a marathon. Right. I mean, you've got to build up that strength. I got to build up that virtue. And like Dr. Bilikowski was saying, he, he'd been a, living a life like this. So when the time came, people that knew him weren't probably weren't surprised by it. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so, again, he's just this absolute tireless champion of his men, taking care of them, both physically and spiritually. Um, supposedly, he, he even brought some people into the faith in that just horrific situation, baptized mm. people and brought them into the faith, heard their, uh, heard their last confessions, etc. Um, now, eventually, over time, he is weakened. Uh, I mean, when you're giving away your, your own food a good set chunk of the time, um, even before this experience, when he was uh, stuck in the Pusan perimeter, uh, he was known for almost no sleep. He would go days without b barely any sleep. Uh, and so you can imagine in this case, it's just as bad, if not worse, um, what he, he's experiencing. And so it wears him down. Uh, and so um, finally, he's suffering from uh, dysentery. He's suffering from pneumonia. And he develops a blood clot in one of his legs at this point. Um, and he is weakened to the point where after managing to say the Easter service in, uh, uh March 25th, 1951, uh, he is eventually, uh, a few, uh, few weeks later, he is carried off to the hospital in the prisoner of war camp. And the hospital is basically a place where they take the sick guys to let them die. There is no medical treatment at all being administered in the hospital. And, um, and when they sent him to that hospital, people knew when you went to that hospital, nobody ever came out alive. Right. Basically, you went there to die. Right. And so he dies of a combination of malnutrition and pneumonia. Uh, that's pro his most probable uh, cause of death on the 23rd of May, 1951. And it, it was there in that situation when he was leaving for the, like you said, hospital that it's one of my favorite quotes in general for any quotes of anybody, but I'm going to read it here so that I don't, I don't butcher it. But as he was, they were taking him out to bring him to the hospital. You know, his men were, the story is his men were sad. They were crying because they didn't want to lose their beloved priest. Right. And, and he tells them, don't worry about me. I'm going where I always wanted to go. And when I get there, I'll say a prayer for all of you. And in the, in the face of death, you still see that, that calmness and that serenity he has because he has no fear what man can do to him. You know, I mean, it's just, 
And really it's an imitation. It's, it's the perfect imitation of Christ. I mean, Christ is Christ is, he suffers the worst the world has to throw at him. And the, the, and any, and, and the, and the sorrow he feels is not for his own sake, but for, for ours. And, and it, and so when you're a priest, you're called to that imitation of Christ. And look, man, I, I, there's some great priests out there, but there's some that, you know, are there high. There's, it's like the, the, the difference between the hirelings and, and the, uh, and the, uh, oh, what's the, what's the, uh, I, I can never think of my biblical, uh, uh, allegories right when I need them. But, um, you know, when, when you see a priest like that, who is willing to give up, not just time, not just energy, but food, water, and indeed his very life. Uh, that's a perfect. That's a perfect imitation of Christ, right there. And that's, man, I, we should all be so lucky. And that that sounds weird. We should all be so lucky to die in a concentration camp. I can think of a, you know, what else would you, what else would you rather lay your life down for? And even even in his last recorded words that we know of. It's, it's none of it's about him. It's no. about it's it, it ultimately goes down to the spiritual well-being of his men, because he says, I'm going to pray for you after, you know, after I die and 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 whatnot. So he's even in the afterlife, he still cares for his his men. Right. And these aren't these. This isn't an, this. Like we said earlier, this is not a saint from the 11th century that you know, who lived such a different life. It doesn't really apply to us today. I mean, we're talking about 50, 60 years ago and, and there's still, there's still guys out there we haven't heard of yet who are, who are still living that life and, and, and doing their best to imitate Christ. And one of the reasons why we felt so inspired by father Capon's story is the fact that we're not talking about a thousand years ago, right? This is a saint for our times. And, and so that's, incredibly important um he dies in in prison what tell us the story of of his the 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 repatriation of his remains how how does that come about that's a fascinating story so uh, it's assumed that he's buried in a mass grave uh most of the prisoners of war who die in the in these camps are are buried in mass graves um and so uh there's kind of the thought is, well, we're never going to find, you know, never going to find his remains. Well, it turns out one of the POWs that he was in the camp with who knew him, uh, he and some of the other prisoners, when they found out that Father Capone had died, they buried his body separately. Really? Um, yes. They, they buried him in a separate spot. Okay. Uh, they dug the grave themselves and buried him in a separate spot. And so, uh, what unbeknownst to any of us, his remains were actually repatriated um, sometime uh, after the Korean War ends, sometime in the, in the uh, time frame 1953 to 1956. Okay. Somewhere in that time frame, his remains were already repatriated. Uh, scientific uh, technology at that time was such that there was no way that these, you know, very deteriorated uh, remains. I, I doubt there was much more than bone left, quite frankly, at that point. Maybe a little bit of tissue, but it was probably mostly bone. Um, there was no way that at the time they could 
positively identify them. Uh, and so his remains were buried in the, um, in the uh, National Memorial Cemetery uh, of the Pacific in Honolulu, uh, which is a huge uh, national cemetery, uh, which has you know, hundreds, if not thousands of unknowns, uh, people who were fairly sure of, because you can look at a skeleton, people who know this sort of thing can look at a skeleton and determine uh, you know, genetic background, like Caucasian, versus Asian versus that sure. sort of thing. Uh, so in the Pacific, that that helps because if the remains are clearly Caucasian, you're most likely that's an American, you know, uh, with a few exceptions. There's some Dutch and some English in the Pacific uh, fighting, but not much. These are almost exclusively Americans. And especially if you're getting them in like in Korea or in, uh, in places like that, you know, those are Americans. Yeah. So his remains were buried. Uh, as an unknown in, in this uh, uh, national cemetery in Honolulu. Uh, and uh, it was just, they were there and nobody knew it. Uh, and it's not until the 21st century when we have uh, the much better DNA testing uh, that they started to systematically go through the unknowns, excuse me, in, the, uh, in these uh, cemeteries. And um, this is a group called, I'll give you the exact name so I get it right. It's the Defense POW slash MIA accounting agency. Uh, and I actually had a student back at Leavenworth who had served with these guys. Uh, fascinating. I mean, it's mostly civilians, scientists and historians, but there are some military personnel, active duty military personnel who are also involved and they go everywhere. Uh, they have recovered remains from World War One, uh, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, uh, related conflicts. So they've been in Cambodia and Laos, you know, the secret wars in Cambodia and Laos during the Vietnam conflict. Um, so you name it, they're, they're everywhere, all in Europe, in North Africa. And uh, so they are started systematically going through a lot of these remains of these unknowns, uh, uh, looking for uh, people who, who had lost family members who were listed as missing in action, had, they had encouraged them to donate DNA samples so that eventually they could hope to link up uh, the remains with people. And they finally managed to do it. And I think it was 2018. I think it was in 2018 that they finally uh, figured out. No, I'm sorry. It was in 2021 that they finally figured out that Father Capon's remains had been in Honolulu since at least 1956. Wow. This whole story just seems so providential. That is think about that it. Absolutely, that's exactly what I was sitting here thinking was, was the Holy ghost uh, re reveals things in such profound and, and, and incredibly humbling ways. Um, and so, and so obviously the story of his heroism and his sanctity and his life of devotion and service is known this process of canonization is how, how, what, when does, when does that process really start? Is that sort of a newer thing or does that? They, well, they, they are, they have already, he's already had his home Bishop, uh, which is the Bishop of Wichita, Kansas has already submitted a 1066 page long report on the life. I'm going to do a quote here. Okay. The life ministry, virtues, holiness, uh, and holiness of Father Capon. And that's yes. already been submitted to the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. 
that was submitted on the 9th of November, 2015. Jason, that's going to be required reading for our next episode. I'm going to need you to read that whole thing and uh, give us a summary of it. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. 1,066 pages. Now, let me ask you something. I have this something I don't know anything about. Is something like that available to the public to read if we wanted to, or is that kind of a... I don't believe they released that yeah. uh, until after the person has become a saint. And then okay. I think those things are available. But even then, I think that's the kind of thing you have to like go to Rome. Right. Go to the library. And, gotcha. you know, so forth and so on. Okay. Uh, that's not something they're going to just like throw on the web. Right. Makes uh, sense. Though I will say, I, I know from a colleague, uh, a colleague of a colleague kind of thing. Uh, that the Vatican archives are amazingly digitized now. Uh, they have uh, digitized almost all of their collections. Really? Uh, of the official, yeah. Now I, I, you know, there's that secret archives of the Vatican, which is <laughs> secret is a misnomer. I think they renamed it because they yeah. didn't like the word secret. Yeah. But yeah, but that was what it used to be called. Where the spaceship is hidden. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and the time machine. <laughs> yeah, the time machine. Yes, that's yeah, it. Um. But uh, where the so, Da Vinci Code is hidden. There you go. Uh, they, but yeah, they've digitized an amazing amount of stuff. Uh, and a colleague of, of a colleague of mine uh, went to. He made an appointment to go to. You know, you have to arrange this long time ahead of time. You know, months if not a year ahead of time. Like I'd like to come. I'd like to look at these certain documents. I'd like to be there at this time. And he gets confirmation. He can do it. He raises the money. You know, which is a big deal if you're a doctoral student or, or a young professor. He gets to the Vatican. He shows up on the appointed day at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m., whatever it is. They open. He walks in and he says, you know, I'm I'm Mr. So-and-so here to get these documents. And the archivist hands him a disc. And he goes, what's this? And he goes, that's everything you asked for. How interesting. He goes, everything? <laughs> yeah, that's everything. You, everything you said you wanted, I just digitized it for you. You couldn't have mailed that to me? Yeah, <laughs> it's all been digitized. So here it is. Wow. And and he said, "Well, what should I, mean, I do?" And, and the guy said, "Well, enjoy your time in Rome, I guess." Yeah, go home. I so, <laughs> so the guy, so the guy, the story. This is again. This was told to me by a colleague. Uh, he said his buddy had a week in Rome with nothing to do but sightsee. Said it was like the best vacation he the ever Vatican had. Vatican is such a weird place. Let me tell you something. Can I tell you a story about my my trip to the Vatican? I sure. was I, I'm I'm at the Vatican and I'm like seven, man, maybe eighteen years old. I just graduated from high school and I'm taking all these pictures. I want to take all the pictures and I see this door that's open and it looks like it's got some cool artwork that's kind of on the ceiling. I can't really see it from the outside, so I decide to kind of walk in there. There's there's nobody in this room. And I can see there's a fresco or a, or a painting that's kind of above the door. So in order to get a picture of it, I've kind of got to walk up these stairs. So I just start walking up the stairs and I'm sitting there taking a picture. And then all of a sudden I feel this. I turn around and there is a Swiss guard. Now, let me tell you something about a Swiss guard. They look funny in the uniforms, right? They don't look funny when they're standing right next. To these guys stand about six feet, five inches tall. This dude had to be 285 pounds and he's standing there and he's like, why are you here? I said, Oh, I'm just here to take the picture. And I just wanted to take a picture of this. He said, you are in the foyer to the Holy father's apartment. Can we help you? I said, no. And he said, you can take one picture and then you go. I've never taken a picture so fast in my entire life. And, and I, and I walked out of there and I went, 
the security here is both good and terrible at the same yes. time. <laughs> How is that possible? But anyway, funny Vatican story. And if you yeah. go to the Vatican, you will find this is the weirdest country on earth. But anyway, yes. um, you know, uh, to talking about, you know, uh, pushing for canonization and, and, and all that good stuff. His heroics with Sergeant Miller going back to the to the battle uh, battleground. At first, they wanted just to give him a, me a medal of valor, right? And it was right. his men and others that were like, "That's not good enough." Right. He was given the initially given the Distinguished Service Cross, and the Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest uh, medal for valor. And I, and I will say, I I have never met a Distinguished Service Cross. Uh, recipient. So that would be like so, the Navy Cross ver in the exactly Army, right? Navy Cross uh, in the Navy, Air Force Cross in the Air Force. Okay. Uh, so it's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, so it, I mean, that's getting the Distinguished Service Cross is a big, big deal. Um, somewhere on my hard drive, I have a list of the number of people who have been awarded it in the last twenty years, and it's only about fifty people have been awarded the Navy Cross, the Air Force Cross, or the Distinguished Service Cross. So it's it's a big deal into itself. But you're right, Jason, that his men, uh, the survivors of that camp, really pushed that, no, that's not enough. This is Medal of Honor worthy. Um, and there, also, you got to understand that the armed services, when it comes to doctors, lawyers, and chaplains, remember, they're an odd breed. We started out, you know, we were talking about that. I can't remember if it was before we started or after we started. But they're kind of an odd breed, and the army kind of doesn't know what to do with those guys, and so forth. They're not combatants, right? Yeah. And so really. the army, at least, and I think the the Navy and Marine Corps to a lesser extent, the idea of giving a, a medal for valor to somebody who's not shooting somebody, or or engaged in combat in that way, just seems wrong to them. Mm -hmm. So there's there has always, I mean, going back all the way to World War One and World War Two. There's been this feeling that you don't give the Medal of Honor to a doctor or a chaplain. That's not, no, it's got to be a killer. You know, it's got to be an infantryman. It's got to be somebody like that. That's who, that's who should get the Medal of Honor. So I have a feeling a lot of what the pushback against giving him the Medal of Honor was probably nothing to do with religion. It probably had nothing to do with him being Catholic or anything like that. Uh, being around the Army as long as I was, I would guess it was because well he's not he's not a combatant you don't give the medal right. of honor mm -hmm. to a you'll give a, com a combat medal to a non-combatant exactly. that makes sense yeah. that makes sense yeah it, that, it's not you know that's not the way we do things and, to, to um, your knowledge to your knowledge is he the only chaplain who's received no, the medal of honor okay no, so there no, have there been others no. okay. uh, quite a few okay. chaplains have but he's he's the most decorated chaplain in U.S. military history correct. I believe that's correct. Yeah. Yes, because he has other decorations for okay. valor. Okay. In addition to the Medal of Honor, the other most of the other Medal of Honor recipients who are chaplains. So the the I th I want to say, and I didn't look this up. I apologize. I want to say it's about ten to twelve chaplains have received the Medal of Honor. I was thinking ten. So yeah. yeah. Uh, all of the ones to receive it in the twentieth century were Catholic chaplains. Mm -hmm. Okay. There were three or four chaplains to receive it in the Civil War, but uh, they were all Protestants. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the 20th century, all of the chaplains to receive the medal uh, were all Roman Catholics. They were in all a dominantly Catholics. Protestant country, too. So yes, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I I'm sharing this on my screen here just real quick because you know here's the Medal of Honor and. 
it, the 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 guy in the white shirt looks uh, from what I remember, Sergeant Miller, okay. uh, Herbert Miller, the one that he saved in the war, and this is his nephew who received oh, the award. You could see here in the middle re him receiving it from President Obama, but uh, I believe this is uh, uh, Sergeant Miller that he saved um during the pow like i said he was there at the time so you can see these uh these two men receiving the medal of honor for father capon and, um, there's, and there's i just realized i spelled ceremony wrong in the uh <laughs> we won't we won't we won't judge you for that um i got a i got a partner i went to law school with um who's who is a, as a catholic um he's from kansas and he has a devotion to father mil capon um, whose father just passed away very recently. Um, he does listen to the show. I won't put his, I won't put his name out there cause he probably wouldn't be put, want, want me putting his business out there. But, um, you know, our fathers out there, even our spiritual fathers, our biological fathers, these men give up a lot to, to, to protect their, 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 their children. And it's more than just going to work and, and earning a living, although that's certainly a part of it. It's, it's a lifetime of, I mean, relentless service to others that, and that's, and that's what really defines that vocation. Um, there are not only, like I said, not only people who are biologically parents of children, but people who are foster parents, people who are, who have adopted kids, people who have been fathers in spiritual ways, this is y'all's day and y'all deserve it. Um, and I'm, I've been very blessed to have both my father and some spiritual fathers in my life who have given me an example that I will carry for the rest of my life. This man, father Emil Capon is, a, is a perfect example of what we're talking about. And to my buddy who I know listens to this program, you know, uh, your dad was a great man. He really was. And he gave, he, he gave a lot, uh, for you and for your brothers and for your mom. And, uh, just know that, you know, uh, this, we, we commend his soul obviously to the mercy of almighty God and to the extent that you can find comfort in this difficult father's day. Um, let's look to the example of father Capon who with joy, and that's the difficult thing to really think about with joy suffered uh so that his children didn't have to so much and that's that's really quite a beautiful thing and it's a really beautiful vocation when you stop and think about it like that so shout out shout out to my boy and i know you're listening um i did uh want to ask dr bilikowski because he has a uh, bracelet on his hand for fathery milk upon that i actually want to get one myself to be honest yeah. um let me rotate it around here so you can say there you go chaplain ooh. Emil Capon. Uh, come on, come on. Pray for <laughs> us. Ooh, where do we get those? You know, it's funny. I got this from one of our former priests at our okay. parish. And uh, it, it was literally in amongst him some stuff he was he wasn't gonna take with when he moved. This is this is two associate pastors ago, if you know who I'm talking about without outing the priest. Yeah, yeah. He had left some stuff and I was looking through and he had left some books and stuff. And I saw that bracelet and I thought, I know about Father Capon. I'm going to I'm going to snag that for myself. And well, so I've been wearing that for a couple of years now. See, I, I always wondered if you had gotten it from one of these groups because they have Father Capon's men and other groups that, 
you know, uh, tell the story of, of Father Capon and, and are pushing for his canonization. My question to you is, uh, do you have any recommendations for people that want to support the cause or learn more about Father Capon, where they can go uh, to learn more? Well, Father Capon's, uh, there is a uh, organization, and I'm going to, I you caught me on this one, uh, <laughs> because I didn't have that up, so let me pull that up. Uh, on my magic box here, uh, there are, where is it? There is a group called Capon's Men, uh, and this was created in 2015. Um, and it is, uh, they have a weekly podcast, interestingly enough, Interesting. called um, And let's see, do I have a link here? I can, well, maybe what I, I, this is maybe one of those things I can forward to you guys. Yeah, if we can yeah, find yeah. that link, we'll put it in the description. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just was uh, because because I knew there was a group called Father Capon's Men, and I don't know if they're actually all necessarily Catholic uh, right. in that sure. group. And there's a, I know there's a website. I don't, I don't think it's the same. It's, it's Father the, Father yeah. Father the Capon Guild or something like that. It's the Diocese of Wichita. Yeah, and the website is uh, fr for Father fr Capon k a p a u n dot org. Yes, um, and they actually. Uh, I know we usually don't end in prayer, but I'd actually like to because uh, say this prayer for the beatification and canonization of Father Capon that they have Absolutely. on there. Absolutely. And you can actually go in here and request prayer cards and booklets to hand out to people. And And I just urge anybody that is that feels moved by this episode and feels moved by the story of Father Capon to definitely get out there and work for his canonization um you know pray for it and um at a minimum at least get his story out there because it deserves to be told mm, right and there is also a, a well done book uh that was put out by ignatius press uh back in uh, 2013 called the miracle of father capon uh and so uh if anybody's interested in knowing a lot more detail than i've given in this in this uh episode uh, that's something to look up and you can get that at, you know, Ignatius press has their own website or Amazon or, or what have you, but we'll that, find that and link it. Yeah, yeah we sure Ignatius will. Press, you know, is a good, uh, good, trustworthy press. Uh, there have also been a couple of, um, you know, some more civilian books that have been done on him. So there's at least two that I know of. And then the father Capon guild, uh, put out a, uh, a, a book or book. I don't know if it's a book or a booklet as well. So there's at least four things out there uh, on him that are more kind of more substantial, go into a lot more detail than we've gotten into in this uh, in this episode. Uh, speaking, you know, I know you said the title was the miracle of Father Capon, and, and early in the episode you had mentioned there are three possible miracles attributed to Father Capon. Do you, off the top of your head, maybe do you know what those miracles are? I know one had to do with, I, I think kidney cancer or something like that that was miraculously healed and there was apparently not even scarring on the on the organ yeah, one was a person who would had multiple organ uh damage and was in a coma for something like three months uh who not only as you said not only came out of the coma uh but according to late later scans uh, there was no sign of damage on their lungs or their kidneys or any of the organs that had been basically on the verge of failing. Um, there was another one that involved somebody who basically dropped over dead during a 5K race. Um, and 
in Kansas. This was in Kansas. And this one is the one that's kind of the most poo-pooed by skeptics uh, because of the set of circumstances. There, there happens to be a doctor right there to help uh, help and so forth and so on. Um, but, you know, uh, Providence can, can arrange things any way Providence mm -hmm. right. to do mm -hmm. it. Right. Uh, and if, if our Lord decided to go ahead and have a doctor 10 feet away from this guy when he collapsed and, and was theoretically legally dead for a few minutes, hey, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's up to God to decide how to do that sort of thing. Um, I've, often, I've often said people need to re recalibrate your, your conception of miracle. Right. Everybody, everybody wants the burning bush. But God, if you read the Bible, God works in, in, in much more ordinary ways um, then, you know, not everybody gets the burning bush and, and you may not want the burning bush as much as you think you do. <laughs> there's, there's a reason why every time an angel appears to somebody in the Bible, the first thing the angel says is don't be afraid. Yeah. So <laughs> you may not want that burning bush quite as much as you think you do, but anyway. Right. And the third miracle, uh, was somebody who was injured, uh, pole vaulting. They had suffered a brain injury while pole vaulting. And, uh, again, not only recovered but seems to have no no issues uh um, after that for any non-catholic listeners that we have wh what do they do to say okay this miracle was attributed to father capon what had to what had to happen for them to come out and say okay we attribute this miracle to father capon uh usually uh, and then especially in the, the the two cases where it wasn't that kind of instantaneous thing you know with that guy killing over at the 5k the other two miracles which are considered more substantial is because there was a time that went by and there was somebody specifically said during that period of time i was praying to our lord and and asking father capon to intercede with our lord and our lady on the behalf of this person who was uh, in the one case like i say in a coma for almost three months or the other case with the with the brain injury so I, I think that that is, is really a big part of it, is that mm -hmm. that was a long period of time that somebody says during that period of time, I continually was praying for uh, for this person, asking Father Capon to intercede with this person. And I think that's that's where you get the kind of it's easier to say, yes, Father Capon may well have helped in that. Yeah, um, but, yeah, because we believe as Catholics that that the saints are in heaven with God. So they have, um, I, I don't know what the proper term is, not direct access, but they have a, they have a stronger intercessory power. Yes. Yeah. To yeah. God. So, so it's one of those, I guess, proofs that the church uses. Okay. Well, these miracles happen because of the prayers and intercession of this, this person. Right. So therefore that, that means that that person must be in heaven. And, right. and and then the church will declare that through the canonization process. And and obviously we've talked about it's not like being a canonized saint is just a a, a flippant process. Like there's there's no. a lot that goes into it. And I don't remember now. I, I I know there used to be a devil's advocate. Is there still a devil devil devil's advocate in the canonization process? That, so that's one of the controversies uh, with uh, Saint John Paul II is that. He streamlined the process more. Uh, I I have never spoken to somebody who had enough inside knowledge to know if there's literally nobody arguing against this 
or whether it's less of an adversarial nature. So my, my take from what I've read, and I'm, again, I'm not a religious historian. Uh, my take on it is it's become less adversarial and more about just, okay, you've told us this story. Can we verify the story? You say there's a miracle. Do we have doctors to confirm they can't figure out what happened? So it's not so much that we've removed the devil's advocate in the sense that, okay, now it's all just boom, zooms right through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're good. Slap a slap a saint on that. We'll move on. Next one. I, I do it's happen to... It's a adversarial relationship is what I Yeah, mean. I do happen to know that, the, that the, the part of the process that examines medical miracles is quite rigorous. It, it's more rigorous than I thought it would initially have been. You would have thought, well, these guys are priests. They're predisposed to see the divine and everything. They just see a healed wound and go, oh, it was a miracle. It's actually... there's there's a board of people involved secular doctors investigate these things it's 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 much more rigorous than what you might think so right um, if anything in some ways it's gotten harder right to get these miracles through arguably in the modern era because our medical knowledge is so much greater we go oh no 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 that wasn't a miracle that was this that or the other thing because now we know right uh whereas very good point Hundred years ago, we wouldn't have known why why this why this one thing happened or this mm-hmm. this you know thing was uh, cured or whatever. Uh, and we we now we can a lot of things that would have been miracles maybe a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago. We go no no I know exactly what that is. I remember studying that in my first year of medical school kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. um, so it's a very different atmosphere. So I think it's less adversarial. In the sense of there's one guy who's just saying, no, 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 there's none of this is true, but it's much more rigorous in a scientific sense. I mean, that was the, that was a very good point I, I hadn't considered um, before. But also for anybody uh, that's a critic of the, shall we say, streamlined process that uh, JP2 um, did, Father Kapan is a good example that it's not necessarily easy and quick because like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, he's been servant of God. What, since 1993 or something? I mean, yeah, you're almost I going so. on what? Th- almost 30 years, 29 years. Yeah. So, it's, so it's he, he's an example. He's an example that, Hey, that's, that's not uh, necessarily true that it's become easier. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. And, and, uh, but again, you know, it's it, there. There are the three. Uh, even if we discount the one that it's kind of a, some people are really kind of more dubious on, the other two look pretty solid from from what I've seen. But again, it's it's up to all those medical experts, and that's why, as you said, it's very possible that the medical expert. I apologize. I have an elderly oh. dog who has come over by me and can barely stand up, so I'm trying to prop her up and talk. Not only are we kid friendly, we're dog friendly too. That's dog right. Friendly. My my <laughs> almost 15 year old Labrador Retriever who can barely walk here. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean that that's another issue. You know, is that uh, who knows uh, when, when those when those two cases get to the Vatican, they might have doctors shoot it down right away and and that might be why there's been such a delay uh but again i I think a lot of that uh, has to do with as i think we mentioned earlier that when pope benedict pope benedict wanted to uh, put the brakes on not not stop everything completely but put the brakes on a little bit more uh and and not rush through so many cases as had been the case under under john paul ii and again i'm not faulting john paul ii as we talked about 
he wanted people to have saints where th that they could relate to, not mm -hmm. some 12th century mystic in a in a nunnery somewhere. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And no, no disrespect intended. Modern heroes. Modern we heroes. Need, we need heroes. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and and you know people like Maria Goretti. Uh, uh, you know, people like that. Uh, we, talk, we, we talk about representation so much in our secular society. We also need that in our religious life as well. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, uh, the, the number of, if, if, sorry, if, uh, if J JP two, she's having trouble with her back legs here. If JP two, uh, certainly one of the biggest things he got a lot of prison for was how many poles he pushed through. Uh, and, and he definitely felt like if any country needed a whole bunch of saints to, to, you know, stand them up, uh, and help them, help them fight, it was Poland. And so, uh, he was very much all about that. And you see, I think there were more saint Polish saints canonized under JP two than the entire history of the church prior, mm. prior to JP two. But again, that's that representation, as you say. Um, given what the Polish people were suffering at that time. I and mean, had suffered through World War II and in the communist yeah, era. It's just incredible. Yeah. We're coming up on an hour and a half. We are, we are going to we are gonna wrap okay. this up. But before we wrap up with our prayer, I want to thank Dr. Alex Bieliakowski for coming on board, uh, for, for coming on the show with us and talking to us about this modern day um, uh, spiritual father and mm -hmm. representation of of holiness, this, this follower of Christ, this imitator of Christ, Father Emil Capon. And Jason is going to close us out with the prayer for his canonization. And we have an image up of Father Capon. Um, and well, so if you if you want, I can share my screen because it has the prayer on. Let's it and, do that. Let's and do a that. picture, a pretty cool picture of Father Capon. Now, but before I did get to the prayer, real quick, there was one other quote from Father Capon that I wanted to to say because it's a quote that that he lived himself, right? And he said, "Christ works." testify to what he was our works will testify what we are mm. and it i mean it's, he'd live that you I can't mean. say that anymore it's distinct Some, sometimes brevity is the soul of wit am i right absolutely so let me let me share my screen and we'll 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 say this prayer and then we'll are we gonna are you gonna lead it or do we say it together how does it how do you uh, do why don't we just all say it together that sounds great that sounds good and and all our listeners please join along all right. Is it on the screen here? It is, but I don't think that's, that's a little tiny. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to let Jason read it and we are going, I'm okay. going to pray along because I can barely read that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. In the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy ghost. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, in the midst of the folly of war, your servant chaplain, Emil Capon spent himself in total service to you on the battlefields and in the prison camps of Korea until his death at the hands of his captors. We now ask you, Lord Jesus, if it be your will to make known to all the world the holiness of Chaplain Capon and the glory of his complete sacrifice for you by signs of miracles and peace. In your name, Lord, we ask for you are the source of peace, the strength of our service to others, and our final hope. Amen. Amen. Servant of God, Father Emil Capon, pray for pray us. For us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And thanks again to Dr. Bieliakowski. We'll see you guys uh, next. I'm not sure what's coming up next, but I know we have some exciting shows coming up. Until then, just remember what I always say. Life is hard, but it is harder when you don't pray the rosary. God bless. God bless, everybody. Mm -hmm.